Good afternoon, this is Gary Kavanagh here on TRSI. Today is Sunday, the 9th of the 8th. I hope you've been well since we last spoke. Michael, how are you? I'm very well, Gary, thank you. Beautiful, beautiful day. Just a small note before we go into the actual news of this week. The uh, George Floyd body cam footage that was leaked still has not been reported by the Irish Times, the Irish Independent, the Journal, the Irish Examiner or RTE. Eventually I will get bored with opening all of our shows by pointing out that they haven't reported on the largest story in the, well, one of the largest stories in the world. But today is not that day. Well, they're probably busy. You know, August, it's such a such a busy month for news. That's why it's called the silly season, Michael. Yes. There's just so much work. You have, you have to make silly, you have to, make, to keep up with Exactly, it. you have to make silly choices. Should we go over... World War in Asia or World War in South America? Which story do we report on? Anyway, a particular uh, hello to those listeners listening to us from the Forbidden Zones. <laughs> I am told the ditches have been dug, the pitch has been filled and the fires have been started. I, I don't know what... I'm watching um, rather gingerly at the moment the, the man from High Castle. The Man in High Castle, which is it? The Man in the High Castle. The Man Castle. in the High Castle, which is very good, but really kind of scary and creepy, and I hadn't expected it to be at all like that. It's a wonderful, it's it's one of the only examples I can think of where the TV series is not just better than the book, but much better than the book. But when you said that, you know, if, uh, speaking to the, or, you know, the listeners from the Forbidden Zones, that's what came into my head. That or that, well, do you remember that, that or that, Movie based in South Africa with the, the aliens. You know, the oh, yes, it was in Johannesburg. Uh, it was very good. Well, it was very good. Uh, not your typical sci-fi thing at all. So, Leash, uh, Leash Kildare and Offley. District 9. District 9, that's it, yeah. District 9 is a fantastic film if you haven't seen it and you like uh, sort of sci-fi. Well, hopefully people in Offley and Leash won't have to deal with uh, Nazis. That might be an escalation of the series. And the government has not yet started rounding up the ill and you know, burning them. Not yet. Considering some of the recommendations we've seen from some of the uh, the health groups that may be on the cards. It's a bit tough, isn't it? You know, Very aggressive form of a zero COVID-19 policy. Yeah. <laughs> That's what we want, a more aggressive policy. So I, I, I'm actually, I, I find some of the comments made by medical professionals about the zero COVID policy rather galling. I mean, you see people go up and they say, well, we have to, we can't have a situation where there's any COVID. There must be zero COVID. And all right, that's fine if that's your medical opinion. And they'll, they'll say things like, we need to do this to protect the economy. I have a sort of a, hold on there, Sally. I don't think you know a fucking thing about the economy. What was it the, the long, the devastating long-term effects, ne- negative effects on the economy? I think was one. Yes, there was one. Um, I think it was Doctor Gabriel Scally, and he was saying that we needed to get to zero COVID in order to avoid a devastating blow to our economy if we had to keep, you know, loosening restrictions, then tightening them, then loosening, then tightening. Them. And he said, "Well, there's a better way." An incredibly just eliminating the virus entirely and preventing its return. Yeah, well, we kind of adverted to this on Wednesday, not so much the specifics, but rather the fact that where, what, what is the policy at the moment? Cormac Lucy, the always excellent Cormac Lucy, on his Twitter feed this morning, goes through a thread talking about the the current state. And he made two interesting. Well, he made a number of points, but one he adverted to the fact that. Uh, there has been a very sharp drop, I'm quoting here, in the apparent apparent intensity of COVID-19, with steady falls in numbers hospitalised and admitted to ECU as proportion of those diagnosed on 30-day moving average. And that's interesting because that's something we, we, we've come across before, if you remember, Gary, we were talking about that, that one of the things that seemed to be happening in different countries as the virus moved through the population was that the virus seemed to become less vigorous or less fatal, less damaging, that in some sense it seems to weaken as it is. But whether that is something to the virus or whether that's more to do with the demographic which is being affected now, because there is definitely a change in the demographic. The average age of people now with it has dropped very significantly. Far more young people are getting it. You would expect that the consequences within that demographic would be less severe on the basis of what we've known so far. 
However, he also then goes on to says, this all begs the question of just what is our objective of public policy regarding COVID-19. The curve has well and truly flattened and the risk of our hospitals being overrun appears to be inverted. What now? Because to go back to what we're saying, and I think that's what Cormac is getting at, that all of this started, the policies that were introduced started to avert the risk of the hospitals being overrun, the ICUs being overrun, to flatten the curve. That has been achieved. At the beginning, nobody was talking about the suppression of COVID. It seems... Now, we haven't, to my knowledge, I say that carefully, heard official statements or indications that we are moving towards a zero COVID policy. But we have been hearing voices, important, influential expert voices, shall we say, from the periphery of this, of the... uh, the expert groups who have been advocating a zero policy. Um, at least a couple of professors. Uh, and as you say, the reason, if if they're doing it on, this, on the basis of the economics, then you'd like to see the economics. Whatever public I, decision I, I is made, we, it's not even, I said, uh, talking about this before, it's not even a debate that I'd like to see at the beginning. I'd like to see a discussion. I'd like to see, I'd like to have the feeling that we as the public are can be told, okay, if we pursue this policy, these are the costs. Pursuing this policy will involve this cost. In economics, economics is always about trade-offs. At the moment, we're being faced. We're being. It, it feels like we're being given us a binary choice between saving lives and allowing people to die in this cruel and careless kind of a way. But there's no sense. No, at least, have you seen anybody doing anything in in the government which is indicative of the trade-off costs which are being imposed by the policies which we are pursuing? Politicians know, however, we do know from the Irish Independent, uh, they FOI'd a number of emails from general secretaries. Now, for, for those who don't know, general secretaries are effectively the heads of the department. Yeah. Although I imagine most listeners do know this, but just in case you don't. Um, they got a number of emails basically from general secretaries talking about this. And they are the only people I have seen, uh, particularly Robert Watt, who is General, uh, Secretary General of the Department of Public Expenditure and Reform, talking about how uh, there there should be a debate here, and there are a lot of issues that are going to be raised by a long lockdown. Um, he actually says that the current uh, the current system has no policy basis. Um, the current restrictions now he's talking back a bit when you know you opened certain shops but not all of them and yeah restaurants weren't open and it was, it was just a mess um but he he does make the point that there is there is an economic trade-off here and it's not a small economic trade-off and i'm just curious if we go for a zero covid restriction how long do we have to shut everything and how many business? Just what percentage of Irish businesses are projected to close if we do that? Also, if you're going to pursue that kind of policy, you need to set down. It would seem to me that certain basic parameters on along the timeline. You can't say, well, you could say, but you you can't just start blandly say, okay onto the point that that's achieved and assume that the costs are, are going to be the same to achieve suppression within three months or opposed to six months or nine months or, well, suppression, a suppression policy until and when we have a vaccine and a vaccine which we can supply and distribute to 90% of the population. I can't see that the costs the economy for a suppression policy are going to be the same whether we po- we have to follow that policy for three months or 12 months. So that has, 
there has to come a point where you say, you know what, at this point, this policy is now incurring the kind of economic trade-offs and da damage that even it's a, that we, we can no longer pursue it. That if we keep going on, on this line, we're going to end up in an, eco an, eco an economic black hole, which we will be unsustainable. Also, there will always... I th to me, there's already the sense that I think that people perhaps are a little bit surprised, maybe not, I, just my sense, that some people have been a little bit surprised at how close at times we have got to suppression. So the number of counties at any one stage where you hadn't seen a new case being reported in the last four days or whatever. And there was a sense, you know what, we're actually quite close to it. But the problem with this policy like that is that you then get, you're like a, ba a gambler sticking in a game because you, you're almost there. If you just hit one hand, that's all you need to hit. Just one really good hand and you're clear. It's like you're fighting in Flanders in 1915. One more big push, one more lockdown, one more severe restriction and bang, we'll have finally got rid of the thing and we'll be fine. But the problem is what ha if it just keeps, particularly in the context, unless we actually shut the island down, Literally, just. Well, I mean, this is this is one of the. We're rapidly running into a problem between what people want to believe and how things actually are. In that, uh, it's impossible for someone to come out. Pretty much impossible for someone to come out and say that uh, we have reached a point at which the amount of projected deaths is now acceptable. Because. Yeah, Michael, as you know, yes. no deaths from COVID-19 are acceptable. Yeah. The problem is that they are, in the same way that there are an endless array of things that we could get rid of because they kill people, and we don't. Skiing being one example. Horse riding. We could simply ban them, saving a great deal of human lives. Horse riding is actually ridiculously dangerous, and we don't, because we accept that people can die. We accept not that we not the any individual death, but the risk profile. Cars, certain industries, the supply of certain materials all cause deaths and we allow all of those deaths. But I, I, that's absolutely true. And that we, we build we build cost and safety into each piece of machinery in every system that we have. We've talked about this before. You can have a, a Fiat Panda is a much less safe car than a Mercedes, a Mercedes, whatever the biggest Mercedes five hundred series is, and you could say, okay, from now on, Fiat will have to will have to be exactly as safe as Mercedes. All cars will have to be as safe as Mercedes, and the reality that that legislation would be would not be that tomorrow everybody will be driving a Mercedes, but rather very very few people would be driving cars, and that would have a cost and a, a knock on effect. But you know, we don't even have to go there right now, Gary. I'm I've talked to doctors. And we've seen this people. We've seen doctors in and uh, health professionals on in the media talk about this to say, right now there are people who are not going to the doctor who should be going to the doctor. There are people who are not getting appointments who should be getting appointments who are not seeing consultants who should be seeing consultants whose operations are being deferred, who are not getting the kinds of treatments they should be. There are people who are maybe just who have experienced strokes or heart attacks at a minor level who are not. Who are not getting the interventions, or are not going to, who are not going to hospitals, not going to any, because of the restrictions, because of the fear that's been engendered, because of the way our behaviours have been changed. People are dying anyway. I mean, yes, but you can't, you can't say that. You can't come out and say, well, whatever about any individual death, the risk profile is now acceptable, given the alternatives. Well, you know, Gary, at a certain point, if you're running the country, that's your job to do that. At a certain point, I want to have a sense that the cabinet is sitting around and actually looking at a set of figures which is not done by a doctor. Yes, they need the doctors to give them the information regarding likely rates of transmission and contagion, right, the likely outcomes of the number of people who will become severely ill, the number of people who may die, the number of people who may... Cause, I mean, it's worth noting, we shouldn't also look at COVID simply as a disease which either kills you or you get better from. There's lots of evidence that people who get COVID may have long-term health issues. I mean, there are outcomes which are not simply sort of die or get better. There are negative sides, 
this COVID is a, a nasty, nasty virus. They need to give that information. But you need an accountant, an economist, a statistician on the other side to say, well, the, the costs of following these policies are. And to relate that also to health outcomes. Rich countries have better health outcomes than poor countries. Employed people have better health outcomes than unemployed people. Happy people have better health outcomes than depressed people. You know, it's health is not it's again not a simple binary thing here. There are lots of things that go into making, to describing the health, and the healthiness of 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 the population of the country, and one and the economy is a very large part of that, and this isn't a sense. I mean, I myself am somebody who would be has to be very careful. I really don't want to get this virus. It would be very bad news for me. There are people that are close to me who are in the same situation. I think we have to be careful and protect the those people. But we also have to recognise, at least, I'm not saying actually, I'm not even advocating a change in policy. I think we need to know what the policy is. I think the people have the right to know what, what the actual policy is, if it's, even if it is going to be a zero policy. But I'd like to have a sense that they are actually seriously looking at the at the trade-offs and the costs that are being incurred. And once they've done that, that they communicate that information to the people and say, these are the basis on which we have made these decisions. And that all of public policy is not simply being driven by the medical experts. The medical experts are the experts on the disease, on the medicine. They are not experts on the economy. No, in fact, many of them have very odd ideas about the economy. Or they think the economy is this soulless, faceless thing that in no way translates to people. Well, yeah. I'd... Let's get the information out. Let's try and treat people as mature engage citizens and give them let them the other danger is that if you don't do that and you just keep plowing away there is talk at the moment that uh, one of the dangers is that if we pursue the policies that we're pursuing at the moment that public as public the public becomes more skeptical that uh, support for the policies will start to fray and it won't fray in such a way that they're just little bits of policy here and there but rather really Basic behaviours, which were really important, will start to be uh, dispensed with, and we will 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 we'll end up a situation where you'll have large section, a sufficiently large section of the population which is simply being feckless, that we could that could lead to very serious outcomes regarding contagion in the future. So, you have to have a certain amount of faith that in the population to tell them the truth, give them the information, because that's the best way. If people feel that they are actually being engaged in the process, that they're far it seems to be far less likely to become disaffected. And also there are Jesus Gary, there are crackpots and conspiracy theories and nutters out there. And you 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 don't want to give them more help than they already have. No, I mean I I quite like the uh Swedish approach, although perhaps not the application of it. I mean, they they themselves made some serious mistakes involving nursing homes, but then again, so did we. Yeah, and you know what? The Prime Minister of Sweden came out and said, we made terrible mistakes about the, the, the nursing homes and care homes. And we that was our responsibility. We got that wrong and we're sorry. And now we're, we are implementing new policies and we're going to do better. And in fact, they did better in places like Malmo. One of the worst areas in other areas actually did quite well when it comes to their care homes, as opposed to say Stockholm. I haven't heard an apology here. I haven't heard anybody admit anything has gone wrong here. Was it Simon Harris or was it uh, our previous health spokesperson, not the minister, the spokesperson, who was asked explicitly about it? I think by David Quinn, and said that the no mistakes had been made. Yeah, no mistakes. Which, considering all those people who died, I think it was fairly easy to see that no mistakes had been made. Or if mistakes had not been made, then your bar for efficiency is not very high. Well, let's look at the meat factories. Ah, the meat factories. Now, 
Nobody could have seen that coming, could they? Well, I mean, no one apart from the people who had warned about it and the data we'd seen from other countries about factories of that type being able to serve as uh, hotspots and, I suppose, basic competency and uh, government. Yeah, actually, quite a lot of people could have seen that one coming. But they didn't. Padre Tobin, on the 15th of May, not June or July, or indeed next week in August, but the 15th of May, tweeted, Blanket testing at meat factories needed now. Meat factories must not become modes of transmission in local communities. God, it's like he's the Oracle of Delphi, Gary. Now, I couldn't find it, but I remember another tweet from him, which I thought possibly was earlier than May, where he said, again expressing concern about the meat factories, he said that we, they must not become the next care homes. Yeah, I think he, he made that quote just after there was a report that uh, there was a meat factory in Offaly in Eden. that 60 yeah. employees yeah. had tested positive. I think, And then... That was after another report earlier in the month about a meat factory in Tipperary where they had had 100 employees test positive. So this has actually been going on for a while now. That was, well, yeah, that was that was May. Yeah, I think it was a, there was a, uh, a meat factory in Eden Derry in Offaly that had very high levels of positives. Uh, we, I, I was talking to a doctor who's... Uh, aware of this issue and said well, there are very sp- explaining that there are very specific problems shall we say presented by meat factories that because you have a system where you, you've created this artificial winter uh, it now seems that for example airborne or aerosol transmission of the virus that it will travel much longer distances uh, in the air at the temperatures that, that, that they're maintained and also that you've a lot of steel surfaces very cold steel surfaces where the virus will last much longer also probably you at the time at, at least at the beginning but it seems still to be the case that you had problems with social distancing not being properly observed or you had social distancing being observed closely in the factories but the factory workers were living in conditions where social distancing wasn't wasn't feasible when they they're all going back to the same accommodations and creating what the super spreader kind of opportunities but anyway the point is 15th of may padder tobin was saying that i have a lot of time for padder but i don't think padder is apollo if padder could see it then other people should have been able to see it and this but here's here's the interesting thing there michael after those outbreaks, well, sort of well, what was the result of those outbreaks? The result of those outbreaks was that a national outbreak control team, All right. chaired by the HSE, dealing with issues involving meat plants was established. Now, that came together on May the 7th. Yeah. So, in review, that team doesn't seem to have been terribly effective. I would, again... and. I don't know the answer to this, and then maybe the answer would be absolutely satisfactory, but I would like to know the speed at which testing is being done and re- results being returned right now. I mean, I don't actually know what the department's stats are. What I'm hearing is that there's a backlog. If, this, if we're, as we're told, and there seems to be a logic to it, central to the process going forward is the capacity to go into localised areas, test and then get your results back quickly, and then you could you contact tracing, test again. But all of this, obviously, the faster you can do it, then the time available for for contacts to occur, and then for more contagion to occur, from the thing to spread into the community is limited. But that means you there are tests, Gary, which can give you results within fifteen minutes. They're certainly accurate tests; that can give you results in two hours. But I, but I, again, and I'm, this may be complete fiction, I'm still, I'm here and they're still taking two and three days. And I'm, I'd love to be reassured that that's not the case. But two or three days is, is too slow. Again, but maybe not. Maybe the t- testing system is just flying along here. This ends up and then we end up locking down three countries, or three counties, uh, again, Amusingly enough, if you are in the affected counties, the Irish Times is reporting that there is no sanction 
in the new regulations as to your movement so that if you do move out of the counties, and we're not suggesting you do, the guards can't prosecute you. But, but, but we're told the guards will be on the borders. They'll be on the borders. And they'll be crossed. And they'll stop the car and they'll say, ah, oh, come on now, turn around. But if you were to say, I'm actually just going to keep straight going, thanks. They might find something else to do you on, but they can't do you on that. Right. But they could be very cross with you. They could be very unhappy. They could be cross. They could say some cutting words. I wouldn't imagine the guards themselves are really enjoying this border duty either. Well, no. Guards are human too, you know. I'm not sure if the guards would have preferred there to be a punishment or not for there to be a punishment because I'm not sure the whole... like. People are going to be deeply unhappy about this. And uh, then if they push it, they can just keep going. So what is the point of you being there? I'm kind of curious to know how many of all these many things that we're supposed to be doing at any one time. How many of them are actually backed by legal sanction at all? And how many of them are just recommendations that if push came to shove, they couldn't actually force you to do? That's just a curiosity. I obey all of the recommendations. I wear my all of them. I wear my mask. I wash my hands. I maintain social distance. Did you download that app? Um, apps. I wouldn't be up to up that kind so of. Not all the recommendations. Then, that kind of. Actually, I think I may have downloaded the app, but I think it it wasn't very stable. I think. I think there's a problem with the app. I think I'm told it's just going through people's batteries. Yeah, I think it's pretty intensive. And if you're on your, if you're doing. On your WhatsApp group at the same time, then it could it, it, you needed to be basically plugged in. Listen, we're from my perspective. I know there are people who are just blanketing, saying that a zero COVID is not possible. Therefore, we shouldn't try for it. And there's a, there's a, I think a very decent logic to that because if you if you set an impossible target, and then you commit to achieving it well then you're engaged in a process which is inevitably going to be a losing one but also a costly one but i'd like i, I all i'd like is just a sense that has somebody made a real good faith attempt to work out what the trade-offs here and i'm i'm not just, I'm translating those economic trade-offs into life and health trade-offs if we want yes definitely I think another thing to be cognizant of is that outside of perhaps italy the projections as to the severity of COVID-19 have not materialised. No. Nowhere close to them. And I think the public knows that. I think the public now knows that this, that what was projected to happen and what has actually happened is a, there are two very divergent paths. And that's going to impact on public willingness to actually abide by the lockdown. I think the real problem if in the sense of a from my perspective from a lack of discussion about the real costs here is uh, is this that in a sense too little has changed the economy is continuing it's going on there we we're not seeing the lights going out we're not seeing the roads falling apart we're not seeing the infrastructure fray and fall apart in front of us the problem, it's a bit like we're on the edge of a cliff and on all the time the cliff is being eroded away in underneath us and that little bit, and the bit of the cliff that is supporting us is getting thinner and thinner all the time. When you're on top of the cliff, you've no sense of that. There's no, everything is just, I think that if we had a sense of how much our economy is being eroded how much of it is being stripped out? Then, if that was in some sense manifesting itself in front of us, then people might be a little bit more willing to question what the costs of what we're doing really are. If every other lamppost at night was turned off, if we were only being allowed to drive every other day because of petrol shortage, you know something. You know what I mean? If there's some kind of a manifestation of a of a shortage of goods or services which was caused because of an economic problem but we're postponing those problems it's it's again it's the standard thing there are people saying things and the 
people saying particular things seem to have far more access to government committees than those who are saying perhaps we need to consider this. But there's no real discussion of it. It's just this is what's happening and there is no risk profile that's acceptable. We have to go for total um, total removal of the virus. Interestingly enough, the countries they point at that have succeeded in this, which is primary ones that people are talking about, are New Zealand and um, Fiji, I think. Yeah. Strict controls on who can come in and out of the country. Something that we are absolutely unwilling to do. So if we're not willing to impose those kind of restrictions and consider as well that while we are not part of the Skengen area, we have previously, I mean, at the height of this, or moving into the height of it, refused to impose travel restriction on people from other European countries. Yes. So if we're not willing to do that, what does it matter if we reduce the internal rate to zero, if we totally wipe it out in the country, but we keep easy and effectively largely unregulated access to the country from foreign destinations? Because unless they also totally remove it and have border controls, it's just going to come back. And for us to have border controls, that would mean we'd have to have controls at the border. And I think everybody seems to have just agreed to agree that we can't have controls oh, along... Borders are wicked things, like Yeah, but particularly here, the border that starts at Donegal and goes all the way to Loud, that border has to be left open. And as long as the north of Ireland has a different policy regarding coming in and coming out, which it does... I mean, you, if, you, if you fly into Dublin, you, you're faced with one set of obligations. But flying to Belfast and just get the bus and cross the border, then you're away home free. Now, I would just point out, Gary, as regards those people who say, oh, look at all those planes flying in. The number of infections that are connected with foreign travel in the last, 12, in the last uh, 28 days is very, very small indeed. Oh, it's very small. It will, in fact, really only be of interest... If we are totally dedicated to wiping this thing out. Yes. But up to that point, it's only a small thing. But I, I think that is, that is the standard COVID-19 whining I think we have gone through now. We have, we have whined sufficiently. I, I would like to see, actually, Michael. I would like to see doctors who talk about the economy treated the same as publicans when they talk about the appropriate health response to COVID-19. Because <laughs> you remember the mockery? That they got? Yes, yes. Mm-hmm. What do you think? You are doctors? I would like to see doctors who talk about the economy treated like that. Because they don't know anything about it in a lot of cases. And if they do know something, well then they can prove they know something. And then they can be treated seriously. Well, I think that every citizen is allowed to have an opinion. And that opinion should be treated with certain... Doctors... Gary, you and I have opinions about the economy. You and I inflict those opinions on the the long suffering listener. God love him at a, at a blistering pace of output, actually. <laughs> but we're not on the expert panel that telling the government what to do and being listened to. Oh God, Gary, what a world that would be! That would be a that would be a wonderful thing, wouldn't it? That would be a wonderful. Also, place. I, I think in general there should be a, more of a recognition that experts outside of the thing in which they are experts at are often just lunatics oh yeah that's that's there's a great i mean the nobel the nobel prizes are fantastic for that just look up someone who's won something for genetics and then look at their other opinion yeah yeah find something they talk about that you know about and look at it and you realize that expertise does not transfer easily this was the this was the thinking um uh, Frederick Hayek, the great Austrian economist who won a Nobel Prize, shared a Nobel Prize, I think. Although technically it's not a Nobel Prize in economics, is it? It's slightly different. It's awarded by the Norway, the Swedish government or rather than the Nobel Committee. Anyway, but my point is he, he, he had often said that he really rather not take a Nobel Prize because the problem with this is that when you get a Nobel Prize, it confers upon you this certain aura of expertise that forever afterwards, every time you say anything, people say, Nobel Prize winner Michael Dwyer today said that every time one of the great pixies in the, di- in the sky dies, 
we see a rainbow. And that would be my explanation of rainbows. Those very great pixie dyed the other lovely rainbows down here. So, yes. And it, you know what? It, you've, I've heard economists, monetary economists, for example, talk about Paul Krugman, who won a prize for his work on trade economics. And he, he's still an economist and a professional economist. And they would say, yeah, he's a great trade economist, but no, he's absolutely shit on money. And I would choose to take their word on that. So, but yeah, when you look at, gee, like you look, you, Richard Dawkins talking about metaphysics, Stephen Fry talking about anything. I mean, it, when you go beyond that, but that's the great thing about us. We are generalists. We can talk about anything. We can be equally wrong in a nearly infinite array of specialities. But the important thing is that if we can manage to be entertaining about it once in 15 to once in 20, then it's okay. Mm-hmm. Then you're for, all is forgiven. As long as you can be mildly entertaining about it and still be wrong, it doesn't matter. Also, we have one great advantage over other over experts. Yeah. Nobody listens to us. No, not that. It's It's... It's an acceptance that you could be wrong. Oh. Did you ever hear the phrase I, that um, <laughs> science does not advance discovery by discovery, but rather one great funeral after another? No, but I, I like that. I like that. So it's just for the listener, if they, if they don't quite get that, there's, um, it basically is saying that the great advancements in science actually happen when those who created the previous prevailing theories die. And there's a certain truth in that. People vastly underestimate the impact of social factors on scientific development. There's a lot of theories that the prevailing theory is so persuasive and the people who came up with it are so influential that they'd need to die before the theory can be supplanted. Yeah, um, I'm sure it's happened in science that you had two competing theories, one of which was being advanced by a guy that everybody liked and was popular and good at communicating. And the other was a grumpy bastard who wouldn't listen to anybody else and was an arrogant narcissist. And they ended up believing the guy who was the nice guy who was good at communicating rather than the grumpy bastard. And turned out the grumpy, bra- the, the, the grumpy bastard was right. I think Galileo is probably a little bit like that. You always got the feeling that Galileo could have, could have finessed it a little bit better. If he hadn't been just so much of a Galileo? What happened to Galileo is widely misunderstood. He couldn't prove anything that he said was happening. And then he did call the Pope a retard. <laughs> Which is almost never a good idea. No, not not when you're that close to, you know, house arrest. And he got a very comfortable house arrest. He did. He did. And his daughter this, the nun was very good to him what was it was pope urban the eighth did urban's go all the way up to eight i think it was hmm. anyway and uh yeah what was it he dialogue concerning the two chief world systems and he which was he, I... yeah he was he was being investigated by cardinal bellarmine i remember and bellarmine's point was what as you said was not so much that it was wrong but that it was not proven and that from the church's point of view, they weren't going to change the interpretation, a long-standing interpretation of a scripture, on the basis of something that might be wrong. So they, he better will prove it and prove it properly rather before the, anything uh, could be done. But, you know, let's... I don't know if Galileo really is what we call current affairs. No, but uh, anyway, in, in that book, he named one of the characters Simplicio. Oh yeah, which yeah, tran- yeah. Which the dialogue Italian, yeah, yeah, basically means simpleton. Um, although he said he actually named him after a um, a philosopher, a yeah. Greek philosopher. But uh, considering that that character had the views of the Pope of the time and had a name that informally meant simpleton or retard, uh, the Pope took it poorly, considering he was. I think the Pope had asked him to write the book. I think that was... Yeah, and then I, he I, received the book and it was like, oh, there's your views. Yeah, I, I, I also... I named the character Retard. I think the first publication Galileo did on this, which was a follow-up to Copernicus, 
was that had had originally been dedicated to the Pope. Although I might be confused, I think, or maybe Copernicus had. Think both of them could have dedicated to the Pope. Who knows? Anyway, yes, the Gallic. wasn't Copernicus who had the gold nose. Was it? No, no, no. It was Tycho. Tycho Brahe. So and yet that... I'm not going to explain that to the listener. You can go look that up yourself if you want to know why a man had a gold nose. They used to say Gianni Agnelli, the boss of Fiat, had a gold nose, but that was for all sorts of different reasons involving Andean marching candy, I think is what some of the young people used to call it. So from uh, experts, Michael, to someone about as far from an expert as can be, you want to talk about Gemma Hodardi? Well, I wanted to talk. There was a lady appeared on my, uh, my timeline in a video talking about somebody in Croke Park, an imam holding a hurley and remarking that it was ridiculous that a Pakistani should never hurl a hurl. Or a if you haven't seen the video, it's worth watching because John Waters is to her side looking like he wants to crawl into himself and implode. <laughs> Do not know. Anyway. You so, nearly see the, what am I doing here? What am I doing here with this person? <laughs> what is this? What's going on here? Um, anyway, she's it's there and she's saying, as I say, a hurley should never be the hands of a Pakistani. You know, I just find this, Oh, and so... I mean, if, if, if you give that choice to the guy, they would see a hurley in the hands of every man, woman and child on this planet. Absolutely. This is an imperial... This is an imperial organisation, Gary. This is... this is, These are the stormtroopers. The Irish flag going up everywhere. Yeah. Heard across it. In Mauritius, from Mauritius across to the Maldives, over to Fiji and down to Patagonia, every Sunday you'd hear... Our Ron Devine. Yeah. Uh, Schools named after Cucullin somewhere in West Africa. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, you'd have Nave Muiras and Nave Anas and James Stevens. And... I actually think you may. I, I've never considered it, but I think you actually may be right. The guy is probably an imperialist organisation, just not an expansionist one generally. Well, I don't even know, to be honest, if we can get away with it. They are present all over the gaff, and every year there are clubs being set up where there were never clubs before. Slowly, slowly, and they're getting out. And one of their policies is to break out of the, the ethnic Irish in, in in places and get into the in the United States or in England, wherever it well, is. I mean, you know, that's that's just a good, solid Austro-Hungarian approach. Absolutely, bring it out, bring it in. Multiracial but monocultural. The yeah, exactly. And the GA is a community volunteer. What's it? The the GA is a community volunteer organization, or it's a volunteer is a voluntary organization based in the community, for the promotion of Gaelic games, and the lifelong, in and that's one of the things I think is also interesting. They say the lifelong involvement, so they want you, all the way. They want them. You, they want the kids at the age of two when they can just walk, and all the way to the to the funeral. You can't play anymore. You can stand on the side of a pitch, and you can hold a flag, or you can be an umpire, or you can be a referee. You, then you can be on a committee. You can make sandwiches. You can pay your membership fee. They want you for the lifelong, which is again, I think, a wonderful thing. One of the reasons why they're so successful. Once you're in, it's a bit like being a made man, Gary, in the mafia. Once you're in, you can't get out. But this thing, first of all, I, I I just find it tedious as an idea of Irishness. The idea, you know, historically, the Irish have actually been fairly relaxed about the idea of people being Irish. We don't have, shall we say, a Germanic idea of you know the law of the blood. If you want to be Irish... Yeah, go ahead, fine, be Irish. Um, all through the 19th and 20th century, you had these odd characters coming over, mostly from places like England and the United States, and deciding they had some kind of spiritual affinity with the place. And they go, oh, I'm Irish, you know. And they go, fair enough, whatever, if you say so, grand. You know, that's what you want. I'm reminded of times what Michael Barry was saying, the Russian people would say when they'd ask about Russia, and he, they would say to him, why are you here? It's shit. 
country is shit, climate is shit, food is shit, government is shit. And I think there might have been an element of that at times in the past with the Irish going, what the fuck do you want to be Irish for? But they did. But most of all, this is just so... Um, now, the lady went to school in Muckross College where they are far more known for their hockey than they are for their camogie. And a ho- hockey, a game which is, ironically perhaps, very popular in Pakistan. And many a Pakistani has wielded a hockey stick to great effect. The GA actually has, is and has been for a long time one of the most successful means by which people who are coming from out from different cultures, coming to Ireland, successfully, peacefully, happily become involved in their local communities. It's one of the most successful ways of de-ghettoising people, of breaking down barriers, because the GEA, as you say, Gary, doesn't see, doesn't see culture. It sees hurling fodder. They want them. They see children. They want the children. So the GAA, there are no colours. There's just meat. Yes. They're just meat. That's a, But there you go. What does, does Gemma think? I mean, back in the day, I can, I can remember when Jason Sherlock burst on the scene as a fantastic minor hurler and then as a footballer, superstar for Dublin. Jason's uh, heritage is connected to the, the Vietnamese. Both people came here in the 70s and established the first Chinese restaurants. God bless them. I mean, in my own Wexford, the superstar of Wexford hurling, I'm on, I'm, I'm on a team with many superstars, is Lee Chin. His father is uh, Chinese. I think Chinese Singapore, I'm not sure. But the the goalkeeper, but that's it, it's ridiculous that you should even you should consider going through people. I don't know what it means. All I know is it's nasty and small and it's hateful. And it, it also and puts it, down on terrorism potential. Sorry, oh, I mean, what if, what if a Pakistani family comes over on holiday to watch and the hurling? Try the game, is Gemma just going to slap it out of their hands? Yeah, it's not for you. Who in you the look whose hands? Do you think get to hold a hurl then? What would you think? I mean, is there a list? Scots, presumably. Cornish. We used to play hurling against the Corns. The Welsh, the Britons. I don't know. Do we? What about in the United States, where you you're the clubs in all there are clubs all over the United States, GA clubs, and I imagine Gary that you might be able to find one or two Indians or Pakistanis or Bangladeshis playing on those teams, you know. Guys who can't get a game of cricket and they think, oh, well, it's a ball and it's a thing, a bat, so. It also is an incredibly petty thing to fall on. Isn't it? It's just so small. Yeah. Yeah, it's not like you've gone from Ireland from the Irish and Irish people should own their country to Pakistani people shouldn't touch this bit of wood. This This, is sacred wood. The sacred ash, the holy ash of Ireland. That's why we sell it for a fiver in carols. (laughs) Yes. Well, now, sometimes you get one of those woolly sheep with a hurl, and they're more expensive. But And they get more expensive the closer you get to the hills of Moor as well. The but John Waters in that video does look like he's realising he has made a terrible mistake. He's not looking the most engaged I've ever seen. And then seen she him. looks at him for affirmation. Yeah. And he, he just kind of looks through her. <laughs> <coughs> I'm actually looking at it here now. You know that look? Of looking into the what what do they call it, the thousand yard stare? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and the hand to the face, the face. It's. Gemma says some very silly things. She does, and to be honest, I ninety nine percent of the time I don't respond. But this just really annoys because it's so small and it's so petty. It's so it's so antithetical to the spirit of the GEA. It also, I mean. It sort of indicates that she has a particular view of Irish culture as being incredibly weak. Yes. Because if you have a culture where the mere fact of someone from a different race touching it will corrupt it or destroy it, that culture is near death anyway. And as cultural institutions go, the GA has been rather important in maintaining a lot of Gaelic culture. I think the, the GA has been, right now, it stands as the last great successful Irish institution. 
Fianna Fáil is gone. The church is gone. Uh, the Abbey, <laughs> the Abbey, God love him. The Abbey is gone. Whatever they, whatever the other institutions might have been, the GA is there, bigger, stronger, better than ever, more successful than ever, more global, more imperial than ever. But also, and I said, I, I, I iterate the point and just to finish up because it's not. This is not a big deal. And I don't want to make it a big deal. Is that it? Also, seems to me that, as I have said here and in other places, the GA has had its issues maybe with in the north and other with sectarian politics whatever it's worth pointing out as say dr ida Milne, who wrote uh, the book the silent the quiet corner is a quiet cornerback about the role of protestants in the ga she she makes the point that from the very beginning the ga made it illegal within the organization to record the confession of any of any member they were explicitly non-political non-sectarian Life catches up with you. There's a you know you come from a community. Things happen. That's inevitable. But the the aspiration, it is a it is a vehicle that I don't know, of a kind which exists in any other European country, a non political social cultural vehicle, for the integration of people into the into a community and to give them a sense, a sense of belonging, not to Ireland at a high abstract level, which I think is far more difficult than some, but. And far more importantly, a sense of belonging to a half parish or to a village. Ireland at a high co- high level. What exactly is a country apart from its culture? Yeah. So if it builds any sort of sense of, of cultural belonging or an appreciation of an enjoyment or an identity with Irish culture, in many ways you're building loyalty towards the actual country. And there's nothing... You just don't know it. There's nothing more Irish than the pure, perfect hatred of one village for a village three miles away. Absolutely. There's nothing like it. And that is the essence, the great essence of the GA. So that you can have guys called Ahmed and Peter and Wojciech, and they know that Ballymagash down the road, they're all bastards and dirty hurlers and need to be bait. And that's a joyful and wonderful thing. And you can be... even have racist, racist people in the gar who'd look at people on their team and they might be black or Arabic or gay or Jewish, but they're not from Cavan. Exactly. And that makes all the difference. They're from the parish and therefore they are washed into the parish. They're in and they are of us. And if you say anything against them, bones will be broke. Anyway, I I don't... Just just quickly before we we close, there was actually something I wanted to go into. There's an article in um, the Irish Independent. It was an interview with a poet called a lem say and it's headlined all racism is based on fear so the less racist you are the less fearful you become there's no space between the less just before racist but you know that's a, that's an editorial issue with the independent doesn't change the story just annoys me slightly but it's just you know when people say things like um, a truly educated man could never be racist and racist uh, racism is a uh, a product of uh, hate or fear or lack of education. I know some very educated people who are deeply racist, and they're not afraid of those people. In fact, it's just it's one of those weird things. But it's isn't it a true? It's just become this meme of life. It's a truism. It's just or the same thing like children aren't racist; they need to be taught. If you look at the really early. Uh, developmental research, sorry, not developmental research, but the research on really, uh, on newborn infants, you can show that they have a preference for people who look like them and look like their parents. Yeah, it's... Racism, in fact, seems to rather be inbuilt into humans, or at least, well, maybe not what we would call racism, but preferential behaviour. Uh, yeah, and it, not not to be picky, but I mean, the, 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 yes, you're correct about the, the reference. It's it's important. I think we shouldn't confuse things because people who push things like unconscious bias training and that kind of stuff will say that this is evidence of racism. Whereas I think more honest psycholo- psycholo- psychologists would say what it is is an ef- a- a- evidence of similarity preference. Yeah, which effectively all races, bar university, university educated whites in America. Yeah. Have. That's incredible. You do, it's actually the research on it is incredibly interesting because university educated white people in America have a negative preference for their own group. But 
they're the only group I can think of that has that. You don't see that, because that is not natural. In a, I don't mean to say natural as in good or bad, but it's not what you see. It's not what you see in people who have not been explicitly educated to be that way. It's not, not, it's not natural in the sense that this is a pre-cultural response. That if to the extent that we can strip, as you're talking about, we're talking about very, very the responses seen in very small infants. So these are pre-socialized, pre-cultural responses. They're, in a sense, hardwired. Now that doesn't it doesn't mean as a consequence that because you have a, a similarity preference that you as a consequence dislike or hate or behave badly to other people because also by the way we're not we're not actually even we're not slaves to our biology either we no, we no, no. we 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 are aware of our behaviors and we can control our behaviors no but it, it comes from the fact that humans are social tribalistic animals yes that's it's it is just part of what we are and if you start swanning around saying that, well, that's not what we are, well, then you'll start putting in place structures that... I mean, a working society is a society that takes the innate drives of people, good or bad, and channels them into constructive, non-violent, generally, avenues. It's also... Listen, if we adopt a paradigm which does not actually conform to reality, to the empirical reality, simply because we find it a more poetically acceptable notion, then it means that if we have to solve problems within society, we're going to solve them using an incorrect paradigm, and we're going to get it wrong. If we're talking about specifically about the attitudes uh, to others, to outgroups, if we want to use that language, if you look at Jonathan Haidt, he talks about this, he said, and there's an interesting conversation he has with Peterson about this, if we are afraid of something, we run away from it. The problem with a lot of the time with racism and prejudice is not that we're afraid, but rather we're disgusted by it. And it goes back to his his theories, moral dis- the, the relation between morality and dis- disgust, and which is connected with like path- pathogens. If you look at the language, the language of anti-Semitism, say in, in Germany and other places, we you see the connection between anti-Semitism and uh, lice and rats and disease and these kinds of things. And these are not things that, again, you run, you, you're afraid. You stamp them out. You destroy them. You burn them. You, ex- you, you, you extirpate things that you are disgusted by. You step on them. You don't... Where if, you, if something is... Af- you're afraid of a lion. Well, I, if, you're on, if you're strolling around the savannah and you see one and then and if you're me you're you're afraid or if you're walking through the the bengal jungle and you come across that you're afraid of them and if you're afraid of them in my experience you 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 run as fast as your little legs can carry you but for some reason it seems to be more psychologically satisfying for these people to say that we're afraid i, I suppose it what that does is it gives us a picture of the racist as a fearful person you know, the, I don't know if it makes sense to you, but it's a little bit like that meme with bullies. We're always told oh, that yes. bullies are people who have no self-confidence, that they're bullying because they're, they have no, they're very low self-esteem and they're trying to bolster their self-esteem. Yes, and then you look at the, the actual research on it and you find that bullies, in fact, have markedly higher self-esteem and feelings of self-worth than the people they bully and in fact the average of the organization they are in yeah that and maybe you, they're not doing it because they're in internal pain they're doing it because they think you're less than they are yeah they're narcissists some uh, of them some of them just, now, some there are some bullies who you'll find have been bullied themselves and are just replacing replaying a, a pattern there is actually a very a very interesting point here and that is actually very similar the way we talk about racism is not how racism functions, and the way we talk about bullying is not how bullying functions. And there's a really interesting experiment that was going on in Canada in the school system, and I must check to see if it's still going on. I, I'm not sure what province it was in. But what they did was they they looked at the research that said that bullies are, in fact, they feel that they have more of a right to lead, and they have more, um, they're more confident and they tend to come from, you know, they tend to actually have a strong sense of self. And what they did was instead, what they tried to preemptive uh, to sort out the bullies. 
and then they gave them positions of authority within the classroom, small positions of authority, like um, uh, you know, that they would have to make sure everyone was seated or that they would have to give out the chalk or the crayons or something like that. And then they were trying to see if, if they did that, and the initial results were very good, if that would um, cause the bullies to bully less because it was a symbol of, of their authority. And it, uh, it caused a bit of a shit show, to be honest, because those who disagreed said you were effectively rewarding bullies and you're yeah. putting them into positions of authority, which they could then themselves use to abuse people. But from what I remember of the initial results, that's not what happened. Well, that's, I think that's very interesting because I, I wonder if the Christian brothers in Ireland had maybe a, a, some kind of a, an intuition of the way this worked. Because I remember when I was in primary school with the brothers, one of the things they used to do, and this was something I remember a brother told me afterwards who had been teaching for many, many years, they, was, they used to do was, they would go to the, the sixth years, sixth class, you know, the big boys. Hmm. And one of the things you were told, that, and you, you heard this as you went up in school, but particularly six, you are the big boys in school. You are the most important boys. You're the you, you you your job now is to mind the little boys. You have to make sure that nobody's bullying the little lads. You know the second class guys, you, that there's nothing bad going. And there were you were given this, and you could see it. I saw it with classmates that they became, they enjoyed this sense of responsibility. Hmm. The sense that rather than it was now their privilege to go and beat up the, t- the seven-year-olds, but rather, no, that they were now, and it feeds into, you know, sort of cowboy, hero, yeah, good guy. That, you know, you're important and you have status and that you should channel that status towards protecting people that otherwise you may actually just fuck with because you think you're better than them. Now, there have but been... Now, yeah, sorry, I do come because there have been, shall we say... Other more traditional approaches to bullying, and, and I have, I, I practiced in schools in in Ireland based on systems which were also used in England. I remember talking to a guy who was a, a, a governor of a large Catholic school in in the south of England. At at a, at a conference, there he and a number of people were talking to people who had been involved in this bullying program, and they were told one of the guys involved designing the program said, "Yeah, we, I'm we're not really convinced that this is the way to go anymore." that we have a fair, this wasn't a, a unanimous sense, but this was some of the people involved, that a little bit like putting psychopaths into psychotherapy, it just it just made them better psychopaths, that a lot of the bullying courses were just teaching the bullies how to be better bullies mm. and how to avoid it. And you talk to any teacher in secondary school now, well, any teacher, many teachers I've, and there's when somebody comes to them nowadays to, to report another student for bullying, Unbidden, will the first thought that comes into their head is, hmm, so are you being bullied or are you a bully? Because it just happens so often that now they understand the way the system works, that they that if somebody think a bully thinks that they're going to get in trouble, they're going to be, they preemptively strike. And at the end of the day, you very often end up in a situation where it's one word against the other. Both have been reported, so it's a plague on both their houses. What can you do? But they have learnt from the the programs and the little courses they've done. They've they've learnt how to be how to react, and the the correct emo- the correct emotions they should evince, which is rather distressing when you consider you're talking about fifteen year olds. On the um on the racism thing. It's, there's particular types of racism that this discourse is worse at handling or simply unable to handle. And I think those are discourses where there are instances where there are actually differences between cultures, whether positive or negative. And this assumption that if you expose them to people, then uh, you know they won't be racist anymore. In fact, it'll lessen it. Whereas if you take, let's say, travellers, for instance, Michael. Yeah. People I know who hate travellers the most are the people who have the most exposure to them. Okay. rural people who have run into travellers and the people I know who tend to have the most positive experience of travellers tend on average to be those who don't deal with them a lot okay I don't know if you've noticed that so you're saying that there may be cultural factors that the that and a, a greater a greater awareness of the cultural differences doesn't necessarily mean lead to greater where a greater acceptance but rather those cultural differences may lead to a heightened sense of antagonism 
yeah, it may lead people to actually to go from, oh, I don't mind those people, to actually, I really don't like these people. Well, yeah, I suppose. Because I can see that. it's the joy of having different cultures. Cultures can value different things. They can look at things differently. Yeah. It can be based on different principles. And exposure to them may simply lead you to go, well, I don't like that at all. Like the British in India, when they decided that um, uh, maybe when a man died, you shouldn't burn his wife alive at the same time. Oh, God, there's such... There is such sort of snowflakes, aren't they, the British in India? But there's just this bizarre idea that if we all if we all learn about each other cultures, no one will make any judgments. They'll all just sort of go, "Oh well, these are all equally valid ways of doing things." And then they su- they suppressed the th- the thuggies as well, an ancient you know, and the more innocent victims of imperialism. Absolutely, it's shocking. I did like who was it who made the the gibbet line about. Um, what is the burning of a woman in, uh, is it Sansaro? Uh, Sutty. There was uh, someone who was asked, a British governor, who was asked about it. Uh, I think it was James, uh, James Napier. Right, yeah. And he was asked to allow the um, the custom. As you know, it was, it was the way of things, to burn the widow alive on the funeral pyre of her husband. And it was rare when he was there, because he was there in the 19th century. And uh, he was asked, would he allow this, as it was tradition? And he said, um, you know, it's your tradition, so prepare the funeral pyre. But my country also has a tradition. And that tradition is that when a man burns a woman alive, we hang them. And we take all of their property. So my men are going to build a gibbet beside the pyre. And if you wish to follow your traditions... Let us all act according to our national <laughs> customs. I like that. I hadn't heard that before. That I, uh, it's sort of a, it's a cultural exchange. Yeah, you know, like, you know, I'm not going to stop you. I think it's important you hang to your cultures, but you will literally hang. Because that's part of my culture, and I, it's a really important part of my culture. Yeah, that's good. I like that. <laughs> Anyway, on that uplifting note, uh, I suppose we shall be back on Wednesday. Now, I'm going to be talking, I'll give the listener a quick heads up. Hopefully, all being well, I'm going to be talking to a gentleman tomorrow night called Benjamin Boyce, who has a fascinating story to tell about uh, what it means, what social justice warriors mean. And it basically, it's it's... A kind of an explanation of all of the stuff that you see happening in Portland and all over these places. Where it all starts and the thinking behind it. And the Brett Weinstein story and how he lost a job. Benjamin has been recording this and discussing it for a long time. And I'm really looking forward to talking. So I don't know if it'll be Wednesday or Friday next week. We'll probably have that up. But So if we don't have that up on Wednesday, we'll be back again chatting about the world. But yes, until... Benjamin Boyce, sometimes called the Boyce of Reason. <laughs> I'm not making that up. He has made that joke himself. Yeah. <laughs> He's a good guy. But until then, Gary, I suppose it's the time to say have a good Sunday. Enjoy the weather. Which has, the sun has disappeared now, but I'm, I'm confidently told it's going to be 23 degrees, so it's sweltering. And enjoy your Sunday and we'll see you, we'll, we'll speak next week. Bye bye. All the best.